Good morning, Bethel. Good to see all of you on this Father's Day. Thankful for our fathers that chose to make worship of our Heavenly Father a priority on this Father's Day. Thank you for all you guys being here today. We are in week three of our series in Joshua. And if you missed one of the first couple weeks, let me catch you up just a little bit. So we picked up with the story of Joshua taking over for Moses. The nation of Israel is standing in the mountain, the Gilead Mountains, looking over into the promised land. And they look and they see this land that God has promised them, but their leader Moses has passed on. And God raised up a new leader named Joshua to take them into the promised land. That was week one. Then last week we looked at this first city that they sent spies into this nation or the city of kind of city state of Jericho. And we looked at how the prostitute Rahab put her life on the line for the two spies, the two Hebrew spies in Jericho and how Rahab, because of her faith in the God of the Israelites, spared not only her life, but the life of her family, but put her in the line of King David and ultimately King Jesus. So we left the story last week. They had not fought the Battle of Jericho, but they've got to cross this river, the famous Jordan River. You know, the Jordan River occupies kind of a unique place in music. You know, for centuries, poets and musicians have used the river to represent spiritual truth, and not only in music, but, you know, somewhat in the, the broader culture as well. You know, for instance, Samuel Stennett of England penned these familiar words. Maybe you recognize this song. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. That's an old, old hymn that was sung. Then there's these spirituals looked over Jordan. What did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. You know, so you, you have this, this River Jordan that's found its way into spiritual music. I'm not going to sing this one. Pastor Jay can sing it at the end because I know he's a, a Johnny Cash fan. But Johnny Cash made this song famous. When I come to the river at the ending of day, when the last winds of sorrow have blown, there'll be somebody waiting to show me the way. I won't have to cross the Jordan alone. Won't have to cross the Jordan alone. Jesus died all of my sins to atone. And the darkness I see, he'll be waiting for me. I won't have to cross the Jordan alone. So this Jordan River has this symbol, symbolism of crossing over from one to the next. Even in the early 2000s, there was the show, maybe some of you watched, I never watched it, but the show that came on network TV is called Crossing Jordan. That was a show that ran for, for six seasons. So there's this, this thought that the crossing of the Jordan has a lot of symbolic meaning. And Joshua 3 tells the story of the crossing of the Jordan River. And we can ask the question, why is it so important? Why does it matter so much? You know, the, the Jordan River really serves as a boundary marker throughout the Bible. On the other side of the Jordan was where the Ammonites lived. That's where the Moabites lived. 
That was the outside of Israel. If you look in the New Testament, whenever Jesus was had the, the Pharisees that were ready to crucify him and it wasn't yet his time, what would he do? He would leave Jerusalem, go down to Jericho, and cross over the Jordan. Why? Because on the other side of the Jordan, the Pharisees, it was outside the reach of the Pharisees. They had no, no jurisdiction over there. So that the people of God had to cross the Jordan River to enter the promised land. In fact, that's the very first thing that God said to Joshua that we looked at in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. It says, my, Mo my servant Moses is dead. Now therefore rise, go over this Jordan, you and all of this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, the people of Israel. Two million people is what they approximate at this point is the size of the nation of Israel. They're going to have to cross this river. And Joshua 3 emphasizes a great truth. God's work must be done God's way in order to receive God's blessing. God's work must be done God's way in order to receive God's blessing. It's not just getting across the river that matters. It must be done in a way that God will receive the glory. God will bless anyone who does his work his way, and that blessing will be withheld from anyone who thinks they have a better idea. So we're going to look at this crossing of the Jordan River of the nation of Israel this morning. And Joshua chapter 3 really kind of records seven steps for us that we are going to look at today. Joshua chapter 3, it says, They awaited three days across the river. It says verse 1, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp. So they came down out of the mountains, down into the Jordan Valley, made camp there for three days on the banks of the river. You know, I think waiting has to be one of the hardest disciplines in the Christian life. You know, most of us would rather do anything then wait. When God tells us, I want you, when you see no open door anywhere, you're like, God, what do you want me to do? And no choice seems to be the right choice. God is telling you he wants you to wait. Some of us would rather do the wrong thing than wait. And God makes his people wait in order to teach them that if he doesn't come through for them, that what they do on their own will end up and disaster. We need to remember that truth. What would have happened on day one or two, day two if Joshua had decided to go in on his own? How many people in the nation of Israel may have drowned crossing the Jordan River? Waiting time is never wasted time if you're waiting on the Lord. Waiting time, whether that's a week, a month, a year, is never wasted time if you're waiting on the Lord to work. So they waited for three days. Number two, Joshua put the ark in front of the people. And he asked, Pastor, what is the ark? Now, if you are an Indiana Jones fan, you, you may have seen the, that movie and understand a little bit about the, the ark of the covenant. 
It was a chest with a gold top on it that was the, called the mercy seat. And the ark was this big container that was carried on poles by the priest. And the ark contained the Ten Commandments. Think about that. These commandments that were written by God, the Ark of the Covenant contained those commandments. It also had Aaron's rod that budded and a pot of manna. It represented the gracious presence of God among his people. That is what the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's why it was so precious to them. So look at verse 3. And he commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. He emphasizes that. You have not passed this way before. Follow me. I'm going to show you the way. You don't know which way you're going. Joshua 3 mentions the Ark of the Covenant nine times in Joshua chapter 3. That means the Ark is more important than anything else in this story. The presence of God is more important than anything else that happens in this story. The Lord instructed Joshua to keep a distance of 2,000 cubits. That'd be about a half a mile between the people and the ark. And this emphasizes the holiness of God. The sinful people of the nation of Israel could not be close to the presence of a holy God. So he kept them separate. So if Israel truly wanted God's guidance, the people must learn to treat the Lord with respect. And the reason given is for you have not passed this way before. Let me make this point clear. Only God knows where we should go. We make our plans, but God determines our steps. Everyone reading this passage has some idea about the future. We have our hopes and our dreams and our big ideas but when it all is said and done, only God knows which way to go. Why? Because we've never been this way before. Only God knows which way to go. And that's a crucial point because like the ancient Israelites, we are dependent upon the presence of God in our life to direct the steps we should go. It is a great advance spiritually to come to the place where you admit how little you know about the future. And I think the older we get, the more we understand that. The more life we have behind us, we realize how little control we actually have on our life. You're not as smart as you think you are, and neither am I, but that's okay because Jesus knows where we are, and he knows where we need to be tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. You have not been this way before. You know, sometimes even with kids, as parents, you know, today being Father's Day, you know, fathers giving advice. We're giving advice to our children because we have walked the path of middle school, of high school, of college. And we're telling our kids when we give them that advice, 
I've walked this path. I've been in your shoes. Listen to the words coming out of my mouth. But do they do that? Most of the time, not. Most of the time, it's in this ear and out the other. Fortunately, that's not the case of the Israelites here. Number three, we'll see. The people consecrated themselves. Verse five, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. To consecrate means to set apart as holy. In the Old Testament, it often involved external cleansing. The Jews were to remove dirty garments and replace them with clean ones. And why does this matter? Why should God care in the Old Testament about what people wear? In the Old Testament, outward consecration pictures the need for inner cleansing. You clean up the outside as symbolically showing that you are cleaning up the inside. And God is telling the Jews they aren't ready for the miracle yet. God has to do a work in them before he can do a work through them. You know, today in our, this side of the cross, the way that we consecrate ourselves is by confessing our sin before God. One of the ways that prevents God from working in our lives is having that unconfessed sin that stays there as a barrier before God. For some of us, that may mean you coming before God and saying, God, I know I'm a sinner and I know I need to accept you as my Lord and Savior. For others of us that are followers of Christ that have made that decision, for you it's confessing that hidden sin and waiting, consecrating yourself and waiting for God to do the work. So we see they, they consecrate themselves in step number three. Step four, they crossed when the river was at flood stage. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, it says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So the Jordan River, you think about this, this mighty, mighty river. Scripture tells us, or history would tell us that during that time, the, and even today, the Jordan River is, comes from the melting of the snow on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon in the northern part of, is actually in modern day Lebanon, the melting of that snow, the water flows into the Sea of Galilee, and then from the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River flows down into the Dead Sea. And so during when the snow melt would happen, the river would expand from its normal, you know, 100 feet wide, 5 to 10 feet deep, it would expand out to almost a mile. And it would make all of the Jordan Valley very, very marshy during this time when the snow melt would take place. Let me show you a couple of pictures we took when we were in Israel in February. So here is a picture of the modern-day Jordan River. It looks not much bigger than Bayou Creek, does it? <laughs> it looks not very intimidating today when you look at this nasty, mucky river. So on, on, I'm standing, of course, on the Israeli side of the Jordan River. On the other side, as you can see on the other banks, that's actually the, the modern-day nation of Jordan. So the Jordan River, even today, is a, a boundary line between Israel and, and Jordan. So, Kelly, you can flip to the next picture there. So on the, the one side of the banks, you have the Israeli army that is standing there with their weapons guarding the bank. And as you look over onto the banks of the Jordan River, you'll see the Jordanian army 
standing there as well, almost like that's a, like a little bit of a face-off there because you, you guys know they've been at, you know they've gone to war twice in their in their nation's history. But it's it's kind of an interesting thought to think, okay, I'm standing here at the banks of the Jordan River, about the place where the nation of Israel where they they crossed. And you think this is a, this isn't that intimidating of a river, but Today, the way the Jordan River works is all of the agriculture for the nation of Israel peels off water from the Jordan River to water their crops. And so we're standing almost at the, the head of the, the Dead Sea. And so by the time the river gets down to where we are, it's almost nothing because all of the farmers are pulling that water off of the river to water their crops. And as a result, on the, the Dead Sea is continually shrinking because the, there's not enough water going into the Dead Sea. There's a resort that was built on the Dead Sea, and it's probably where I'm standing, and the Dead Sea is where the gas station is down the street, because the, the Dead Sea has shrunk that much because of the Jordan River, you know, there's just not enough water flowing into it. Just a little bit of, of background there. But whenever the nation of Israel was going to cross it, it at this time during the year, it was about a mile wide. And so when Jeremiah wrote about the Jordan River, he mentions in Jeremiah chapter 12 the thickets of the Jordan because what would happen is as the Jordan would expand, it would take all of that dead brush that was around the banks of the Jordan and push it out to the sides, almost making like an impenetrable barrier for people to cross over all of that dead thickets and, and bush and all of that. And so during this, this rainy season, the melting of the snow, the, the river became this vast marsh. And you've got this raging current in the middle of the river, and you have this water that spreads out for nearly a mile, and an encompassing barrier around the river just made this almost like, how are we going to cross this river? And that's the situation that Joshua faced as he contemplated crossing. You know, really there was no human strategy that would get the people to the western side of the river. This was well before the ingenuity of the Romans to build a river or build a, a bridge just like that to cross a river. But they needed to cross to get into the promised land. So what was God going to do? Joshua had no secret plan in his back pocket. The Jews didn't know how to navigate the dangerous waters of the Jordan. Think about this. These people have been in the wilderness for 40 years. I would venture to guess that most of them didn't know how to swim, being out in the desert. And so when they see water like this, they're terrified. They don't know what they're going to do. Probably, if they don't know how to swim, most of them have probably never even been in a boat. Don't even know how to make a boat. So how are they going to get across this river? You think about what God did 40 years ago when he split the Red Sea with Moses, but that happened 40 years ago. Could they trust God in this situation as their ancestors had trusted them when the Egyptian army had cut them off and the Red Sea stood between them and their deliverance? What does faith look like when we cannot find a way forward? Faith means trusting God when circumstances make no sense to you. Say it again. Faith means trusting God when circumstances make no sense to you. 
We all come to crisis moments sooner or later. The how is none of our business. God is obligated, is not obligated to explain himself to you. He arranges life that way on, a pur- on purpose. What do you do when God hems you in and takes away all seemingly options away from you? How do you navigate that? Faith means trusting God when your circumstances or when your options in life make no sense to you. How do you do that? You keep your eyes on him. Number five, the fifth step they took is the priests entered the water before the miracle took place. Verse eight, they're following, they're obeying what God told them to do. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Suppose you are one of the priests that have been commanded to go into this raging river and carry the Ark of the Covenant. Carrying the Ark of the Covenant was a high privilege and the greatest honor you can receive. You feel great about it until you hear the Lord tell you to carry this heavy thing into a raging river. Walking, I'm sure, through thickets, through marshy ground. This makes no sense to you as the priest. You stand in the river. Why not stand near the river? Why do I have to go into the river, God? What if the river washes us away? We can't swim. We've never swam. We've got this heavy thing on our back that we're carrying. The thing is, we see here, there will be no miracle until the priests enter the water carrying the Ark of the Covenant. God arranges it that way so that their faith would move them from safety to danger. It was a test. Anyone can trust me on dry ground. Anyone can trust me in safety. Will you trust me when you're standing in the water? It's the same for us today. There will be no miracle until we move. My favorite definition of faith goes like this. Faith is belief plus unbelief, and acting on the belief part. I never heard it worded that way until I read that recently. Sure, we all have doubts. Who doesn't? We all have doubts in life. Why? Because nothing is certain. Nothing is 100%. We can pray and pray and pray, but we're never 100% sure on how things will turn out. If you wait for 100% certainty, you will wait forever. So how does faith work? God responds to those who partly believe and partly doubt, but take their heart in their hands and take action on the belief part. That is faith. Why go into the water? If God wants to work a miracle, he can do it just as well while we're standing on dry ground. That's true, of course. But God often asks us to take a step out in faith faith because that step demonstrates that we believe God can hold us. We believe that God will take care of us. It's a step of obedience. When Jesus worked the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, he began by telling his disciples, give them something to eat. (laughs) To which the disciples thought, what are we going to feed them, Jesus? There's no McDonald's around the corner that we can just go get a whole bunch of Happy Meals. 
He's feeding them out in the, the middle of nowhere. And they found a, a, a lad with five loaves and two fish. That's all they had, but that was enough. And Jesus took the little they had and he multiplied it to where all of them were fed. And there were 12 basket loaves left over. God routinely asks us to do the impossible so that when it is done, he alone gets the credit. Remember, what does the Ark of the Covenant symbolize to the nation of Israel? The presence of God. What was going before the nation of Israel into the water? The Ark of the Covenant. We just sang on the song, God Before Us. The nation of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, was going before them into the river. God routinely asks us to do the impossible so that when it is done, he alone gets the glory. Remember, they don't know what's about to happen. When we read the story, we know how it ends. We think, that's oh, it's not that big a deal. But to all their credit, the priest did not hesitate. They obeyed the Lord. So we see step number six, the water stood in a heap. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, that, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite of Jericho. Think about this. The priests stepped in. Can you imagine, as the nation of Israel, as the people on the banks watching as the Ark of the Covenant goes out into the waters, and it's like God, like, like a, a sheet, just rolls back the water flowing down from the Sea of Galilee and stops it 17 miles away. How remarkable would that have been? Two million Jews prepare to cross the river, not knowing how they will do it on this river that is a mile wide. Not only is the river a mile wide, but they've got the city of Jericho just on the other side of the river. And no doubt they're probably thinking, once we get into this river, the city could slaughter us. They could take us out. And a little group emerges and begins to march toward the river. The priests in white robes carry the Ark of the Covenant on poles, resting on their shoulder. And everyone, I'm sure, is watching. I can just imagine the silence among the people. What is God going to do? As the feet hit the water and the water begins to stop. They march in a straight line. Down the bank they go with the water flowing before them. And as their feet enter the water, the river stops from the north. It's as if the Lord reached down and turned off the spigot. It was a pure miracle of God. The water stopped flowing because it was heaped in a place, Scripture said, called Adam, approximately 17 miles north of the crossing. And this miracle, note, it happened when? When did it happen? after they obeyed, not before. It happened after they took that step of faith to obey the command of the Lord. How did it happen? Perhaps the best explanation comes in Joshua 3.11, where Joshua calls God 
the Lord of the earth. This is the first time this phrase is used in all of Scripture. The Lord of the earth is a statement of God's absolute sovereignty over this world. When the Creator speaks, the Jordan River obediently rolls up in a heap. It's as Joshua is saying, this world is in God's hands. So we see the river rolls up in a heap. And number seven, the entire nation crossed on dry ground. Verse 17, so Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all of its banks as before. The miracle lasted as long as it was needed. It was needed as long, long enough for two million people to cross over the river, and it lasted that long. If a visitor happened to pass that spot the next day, he would see four million footsteps going into the river, thinking, what in the world? Can you imagine going into that river, but the river would once again be a mile wide. That visitor would have no idea what happened there the day before. God had two specific purposes for this miracle. First, he wanted to show the nation of Israel that he was exalting Joshua as his appointed leader. The nation had seen God work miracles through Moses, but he wanted to say, this is now my chosen leader. Joshua, follow him. Just as Moses had led the people across the Red Sea, now Joshua had led the descendants across the Jordan. Just as God had been with Moses, he would now be with Joshua. And there's a second reason for this miracle. It prepared the Jews for the battles to come. Very soon the people would embark on seven years of warfare as they conquered the promised land. And when Joshua explained the miracle to the people, he gave them this reason. Verse 10, he, tell, he told them, and Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. This is how when you go to battle with these people, it's almost like he's teeing them up. We're getting ready to go fight all of these people. And this is the God that we have on our side. A God that can stop a river? Do you think he can conquer those people? Yeah. It's like he's given the pregame speech in the locker room to the nation of Israel before they go to battle. Allow this miracle to give you confidence in our God. That same God that did this is the same God that we worship today. Knowing our God is capable of all of this, does that not give you confidence to know that God can move and work in your life? Yes. Yes. As we finish out, let me give you just a few thoughts to ponder as we leave today on this remarkable story.
until we yield ourselves to God, we are not ready for the miracle we need. Joshua had to give up many plans of his own, I'm sure. The priests had to have the courage to step into the rushing water. The people had to walk across the riverbed to get to the promised land. Yielding means giving up our right to give God advice. It means when the time comes to move, we step out in faith, leaving the results in God's hands. When we dare to follow God, we often find ourselves walking new paths. And what God said to the Jews, he still says to us, you have not passed this way before. Trust me. Trust me. God's command to his people is always forward. There will be new service, new songs, new ministry, new land to conquer, new people to reach, new prayers to pray, new challenges to face. Trust me. The next thing we see is following God always, always leads us out of our comfort zone. If you want some good news, here it is. When God calls us to move forward into the unknown, we need not fear because why? He is already there. He was there for the nation of Israel when the Ark of the Covenant was there stopping the river. And he is there for you today. God never asks us to go anywhere without going before us as he traveled by faith. When we say, God, I'm afraid of the future, the Lord replies, afraid of the future, my child, I invented the future. I am in the future. Why be afraid of crossing the Jordan when Jesus has crossed it already for us? You see, he went into the dark waters of death when he died upon a cross for our sins and came out victorious on the other side. And that's why we do not have to cross the Jordan alone in this life. There are moments when you may feel alone, but there is never a moment when we are truly alone. Just as the ark led just as the ark led the people of God into the river and protected them while they crossed the river to the promised land, Jesus, our Savior, will lead us through the darkest moments of our life and out to the other side. There may be some of you sitting here today that can say, Pastor Robert, I have experienced this. How has God been working in your heart? What Jordan River is God asking you to step out into by faith to see what God can do in your life? Are you ready to trust him to handle the river? So many times we come looking for a miracle, but not yet ready to step our feet in the river in obedience. We're waiting for God to do a work. We're praying. We're, we're looking for a miracle. And God's saying, just obey. Obey me. And obeying looks like so many times taking that next right step. What is the next right step that God 
is calling you to do. So many times, that's going to look like moving out of your comfort zone into the raging waters of life and waiting for God to do that miracle. Let's pray.